we have been working through uh, the book of Leviticus and looking at some key elements there. This is our last uh, sermon in the, in the book of Leviticus. And one of the things that we notice even from God's word in general is that the moment we open it up, if you want to consider it as a story that's being told, if it was a drama that was being produced, then as the curtain opens, the very first thing that we see in God's word is that God desires to live among us, have an intimate relationship with us, do life with us. That's, that's what God's about. And that's the very first thing that we see in the book of Genesis. We see that, that God desires to make man in his own image. And, uh, and there's this relationship that's, that's established between them. And it doesn't take very long before that relationship is, is severed and uh, disrupted. We've talked through, uh, throughout uh, our sermons in Leviticus about the big problem that Leviticus highlights. That problem is that God is what? Good. And we are? Not. Yeah. And that's the big issue, really. And that's made very, very clear throughout the book of Leviticus. We aren't holy because of our sin. Our sin stands in the way of our being in the presence of God. And so the sin problem needs to be resolved. And that's, that's to a large part, what, what Leviticus starts to lay out. In Leviticus, God laid out the sacrificial system necessary so that sin could be temporarily dealt with and people could enter his presence. God deeply desires relationship with us, but he had to teach us to take sin seriously because he takes it seriously. And he's the only one who truly understands its significance and its impact. So we need to follow his lead. And here's the real beauty of it all. When we begin to understand more clearly our sin problem in contrast to the holiness of God, and what an impassable gap it has created between us and God. And that's when we can truly begin to appreciate the magnitude of the gift of salvation that God has provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we understand how much a holy God hates sin, then we can begin to understand how tremendously God loves to take the sin of the world, place it on his holy son, and judge him in our place. When we understand something of the holy nature of God, we understand why we can't just enter his presence. His holiness would consume us. We need a covering, a shield, some sort of protection. We need that sin problem dealt with. And the sacrificial system was a temporary solution, one that covered the problem for a time, but one that also foreshadowed beautifully the coming permanent solution the hope the promise of the lamb that god would provide who would remove the guilt of our sin completely take for instance the sin and guilt offerings that we talked about uh, a few weeks back the animal for the offering had to be slain before the altar and its blood sprinkled on the altar to make atonement for the individual that was bringing that offering this had to be done on a regular basis you could not come before God and expect your worship to be accepted or your petitions to be heard until your sin had been atoned for. The person offering the sacrifice would be constantly reminded that sin has a cost and that blood must be shed in order for sin to be atoned for. Uh, I worked for a period of time in an abattoir. An abattoir is just a very pretty French word for a slaughterhouse. Um, it was called Guelph Better Beef. 
Um, and uh, I spent some significant time there. Part of my job was in fancy meets, and I'm not going into any detail, so you can all just relax. We all want to be able to go and have lunch afterwards and not have that disturbed. Um, but my job, first thing in the morning, very early, was to go in and set up the workstations. Uh, so I was there at 6 a.m., and my job was to turn on the power and turn on the water to the various areas, and then I moved down to fancy meets. That's where I was. And... Uh, and in order to get to where the power and the water was turned on, it had to walk past the kill floor. Um, there's nothing pleasant or even neutral uh, about blood and death. Um, suffice it to say, the smell is in the very air and it's not pleasant. The person offering the sacrifice in Leviticus would be regularly reminded that the atonement for sin is a serious, costly, solemn Messy, bloody business. And here's why God designed it that way. It pointed forward to the serious, costly, solemn, messy, bloody death of his perfect son on the cross to atone completely, perfectly, and permanently for our sin. That's why it had to be that way. God wanted us to have a clear picture of the full significance of Christ's sacrifice for us. God wants you to know how totally unworthy you are in your sin and how unfathomably deep is his love for you that he would go to such unimaginable lengths and immeasurable cost to redeem you even when you weren't looking for him. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. And the gospel demands a response. I have to ask you, why are you here this morning? What brought you to Fellowship Oshawa? Oh, I know quite a few of you are here because you have, you have already responded to that gospel. You're here out of a heart of love in response to the love that's been shown to you by God. You desire to be here where God has invited you to come and worship him and fellowship with other believers. R.C. Sproul said, it is the pleasing of God that's at the heart of worship. Some of you I don't know as well. Maybe you're here because of duty, tradition, or obligation. Obviously, a number of you are here for the baby dedication this morning as well, and we're grateful for your presence. I trust this morning you will fall in love with the Savior all over again, and this will become a joyful opportunity. Maybe you're here out of curiosity. You came on your own or were invited by someone else. You need to understand that this was not an accident. It's not coincidence. God brought you here today. He wants you to come to know him in a deep and intimate way. He wants to be not just a part, but the very foundation of every aspect of your life. You have an incredible opportunity to enter into a relationship with the God of the universe today. This is not something to be taken lightly. Rather, it's something to be marveled at and soberly considered. Let's get to our passage. We're looking at Leviticus 26 this morning, which if you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles on the table, and there, it's page 60 in those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible of your own, you're more than welcome to take one of those as our gift to you. The uh, words will also be on the screen behind me. So we're starting in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. 
and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land. And the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So this first passage I have entitled God blesses the obedient. As we read this first part of the passage, we see a promise by God to provide for his people when they respond in obedience to him. And quite frankly, God tends to provide generously. That at least has been my experience, and I know it's been the experience of many of you as well. He is a good God, often giving us more than we need. He talks about providing plentiful rain for crops and that one harvest will blend right into the next so that there's no lack. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, you're going to have to clear out the old to bring in the new. There's still going to be left over from the last time around. Right? There is no, there's no dead space where you're going, oh man, where's our next meal coming from? That kind of thing. Bread will be plenty, he says. He promises peace from enemies and from wild animals. And when there is conflict, their enemies will fall before them. Now, I grant you that these promises were primarily made to the people of Israel. That's uh, to whom Leviticus was written. But Paul also teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, that these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So we're supposed to learn from the Old Testament, not ignore it as irrelevant. We have the benefit, the blessing of a fuller revelation today. But is that it? It sounds kind of oversimplified, doesn't it? You'll be good and you'll get blessed and you do bad and you'll get punished. Right? Is, is, is that the kind of relationship that God wants with us? You do this and then I'll do that in return? It seems rather performance-based, doesn't it? Perhaps at first glance, it might seem that way, but notice verse 13. If we go back to that, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So God gives three reasons for them to obey him, to want to obey him. Reason number one, I deserve it. He starts by saying, I am the Lord your God. As God, as the creator of the universe, he demands that kind of respect and obedience. But there's more to it. Reason number two, I showed you my power. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And thirdly, he says, I showed you my heart in restoring your dignity. He says, I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect, right? Straight up like men, not beaten as slaves. So that paints a slightly different picture, doesn't it? We see now a loving, caring God who wants good things for his people and desires to bless them as they live in obedience to his commands, which are designed for their good. Some of you might legitimately say, but wait a second, Mike. 
It's not always true that good things happen to those who obey God. What about you? You were living in obedience to God, including following him in faith to Fellowship Oshawa, and a few short months later, you lost your son. Where's the blessing in that? I know these questions because I have wrestled with them myself. I have asked God myself in those quiet times those same questions. And if you are willing, the crucible of grief and loss can be a place of great learning. For this reason, I want to draw your attention to those last verses. Look what it says. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. As I've already mentioned, God desires relationship with mankind, but not not in the broad, big picture, kind of distant. He's talking about intimacy. These words that we have just read are not those of a dictator toward his subjects, but of a loving sovereign toward his cherished people. He wants to walk alongside us. He wants to live with us. He wants to commune with us. He wants to converse with us, sorrow with us, and rejoice with us. My David's death was in great part a consequence of his own choices. I'm not God. I could not foresee David's future. It's possible that God taking my David when he did may indeed have been a great mercy, a blessing to both him and us. But this I do know. God answered my prayers, and not just mine, for the salvation of my son. What is the greater blessing? That I live a life free of heartache here on earth for 70 years, maybe? Or that my son's eternity rests secure because God answered my prayers and opened his eyes to his need of Jesus as his Savior. I'll tell you what, it is clear to me that God, in his great mercy, blessed my obedience. Folks, I'm far from perfect. There was a time in my life when I was religious, in the sense that my obedience was outward. It didn't come from the heart, but rather from three sources. Number one, fear. Fear of punishment and fear of disappointing God. Number two, duty. It was the right thing to do. I'm the oldest son of the oldest son of a you know, European family, and there's all that obligation-y thing that's, that's just there. So I felt all of that. And pride. I felt like I had something to offer God. Imagine for just a moment if that was the foundation on which my marriage relationship was based seems funny sometimes that we are almost kind of okay with that as a God relationship. We never dream of, of establishing our marriage relationship based on fear, duty, and pride. That'd be weird. We'd say something's seriously wrong in that relationship, wouldn't we? Yeah. Then I came to understand that God's love for me was not based on what I had done or could do for him. He already loved me before the foundation of the world. He loves me because he is love. It is his very nature. Now I have a love for him and as a consequence, a love for others that I never had before. It is a freeing kind of love because it's not performance-based. It doesn't depend on me and how good I am any particular day or week or whatever. There's no fear in this kind of love relationship. In fact, in 1 John 4 verse 8, it says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. 
That's the kind of relationship God wants with you. And he's offering it to you this morning. The response to that kind of love is love in return. And obedience is not duty, but it's actually a form of worship. You declare his worth to you by your desire to obey and please him. Because he's worthy, we choose to respond in obedience in order to please him because we love him, not because we are afraid of him. D.A. Carson said, Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy. Delightfully so. Uh, I added the emphasis in the end, but I thought those words were so important. At first, it starts off almost sounding duty-like or obligation-like, and yet at the end there, delightfully so. We delight in him. And Graham Kendrick writes, Worship has been misunderstood as something that arises from a feeling which comes upon you. But it's vital that we understand that it is rooted in a conscious act of the will, a choice to obey, sorry, to serve and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. That's us. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, then we choose to serve and obey him. And it ought to be out of a heart of love. So when we understand the love of God for us, our hearts respond in love to him. We desire to obey him, not out of fear, but as an act of worship, a response to his love. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul pleads with us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. God wants all of us, our entire lives, willingly placed under his authority so that he is unhindered, unhindered in his ability to act in and through our lives for our good and the good of others and for his glory. Let's keep reading. Leviticus 26, verse 14, says this, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you'll not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemy shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Hmm. Second part, God disciplines the disobedient. We read those passages, uh, when I read them at least, my first response was, wow, what happened to the loving God from the first chunk? Where's that? This seems really kind of harsh. He's still there, folks. How many of you are parents here today? As parents, we want the best for our children. We desire to see them grow up to be healthy, happy, and successful. They, on the other hand, want to eat Fruit Loops for supper and play video games all day. Yeah? And as the ogres that we are, we make them eat broccoli and fruit, minus the loops, and do their chores and homework. Why? Because we love them. They don't necessarily feel like that at the time when we are loving them with broccoli and such. But the reality is that that's where it's generated from. The parent says, oh, I don't care, do whatever you want. That, that kid very soon knows 
My parent doesn't care. They know it. I, I teach high school. I've taught for 28 years. I've probably taught 7,000 kids. And I've talked with kids who have shared with me, oh, my parents don't care. I never see my dad. Or whatever the situation might be. And, uh, you know, they might have great stuff. Like, you know, uh, they've got running shoes. I've never paid that kind of money for a pair of shoes ever in my life. And I'm a professional. Right? And, and things like that. And, uh, and I've seen kids come and purchase a yearbook and just open up their wallet and have, you know, five 50s sitting in there and going, Red, is that the 50? I don't remember anymore. I haven't seen one in such a long time. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I'm thinking, here's this kid who's got all this stuff, all this money available to them, and they're not happy. And they're blowing off school and doing a variety of other things, right? And, and you start to understand, yeah, got all that, but I have never once seen a parent at parent-teacher interviews. I have tried to phone home and never got messages back. Those kinds of things, right? As parents, we discipline our children because we love them. We discipline them when they disobey because we know there are negative consequences for doing wrong. And we love our kids way too much to just let them carry on doing that, to suffer those consequences. In fact, we often want to resolve the issues when they are small, because the issues are small. Because when the issues are big, it's sometimes too late to bring that back in again. God is exactly the same. He loves us as his children. He refers to himself as the father. right? And there's that image of family that we talked about at the beginning. He'll not just let us continue to do wrong because the consequences are too severe. And we're not talking now about, you know, uh, I don't know a wrecked car or whatever it might happen to be. His, in his sphere, the consequences are an eternity separated from him, and his heart desires that we spend eternity together with him. He disciplines us because of his love for us. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. And, the fa- and as a father, the son in whom he delights. What is God's goal in discipline? Why? Restoration. Let's look at the last portion. We're going to jump over to verse 40. Verses 40 to 45, it says this. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, And I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. The land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity. Because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. But listen here. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So there's a few things that he's saying here. In this last section I have entitled, God disciplines the disobedient. Sorry, God restores the repentant. Do you ever play the if I were God game? 
At times I do, if only to remind myself how great God's heart of mercy is. If I were God and I had demonstrated my great power by miraculously rescuing them from the, their, their entire nation from the hand of Egypt, which was at that time the most powerful civilization on earth, and if I had brought them across the Red Sea on dry land, as we read in Exodus, and then had provided food and water for two to three million people in the wilderness on a daily basis. I just want you to think about that. I think I read somewhere, somebody actually sat down and calculated what it would take to feed two to three million people on a daily basis in that desert. And they were talking in the neighborhood of 450 railway cars full of food to, to cover all that. Like, and that happened every single day, every single day. And they had meat, and they had bread, and they had water, and all their needs taken care of. All of that, I've done all this, and in the midst of all of that, they turn around, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they say things like, man, I sure wish we were back in Egypt, because man, those leaks were good. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you lost your mind? What is wrong with you? Don't, you? don't you remember? You were slaves. They were beating you to death. They were making you make bricks, and then they said, hey, you know what? You're going to make the same number of bricks, but you've got to go find your own straw now. We're not providing that anymore. Right? They were chucking your babies in the, in the Nile River to the alligators. Do you, do, you, do you remember that at all? Oh, the leaks were so good. What is wrong with you? Seriously. Right? That's the kind of response that you get from this people. And then they turn their backs on God and they attribute all of the miracles to what? A golden calf that they formed when they chucked some gold uh, jewelry into the fire and they cast this calf and they said, yeah, that's what saved us. Wow. I'd have serious difficulty not wiping them off the face of the earth. I mean, really, if I were God, I can create a whole new nation just with a word. Why am I keeping these ungrateful people around? As implausible as it might sound, God places individual and unique value on each one of us. Each one of us. For all our faults and limitations, we are far more than just little ants to him. He doesn't write us off when we mess up. He seeks our restoration. He responds with mercy and forgiveness when we turn to him in repentance. This is, this is not a God of our own imagining. That, frankly, to me, that doesn't make sense. That kind of love is, it's ridiculous. The kind of love where a God who creates a creature that turns around and spits in his face and goes off in his own way, and God says, I love that person and I want to restore them. That's, that's ridiculous love. That's the love that we see attributed to the God of the Bible. This is the good news of the gospel. God has revealed himself in all his love and power and holiness, and we have chosen as a race, as mankind, to disobey regardless of that. We deserve to have him write us off as worthless, but instead, he still loves us, so much so that he sends his son Jesus to suffer for our disobedience, to die in our place, so that by his, his obedience and life, the penalty is paid. And restoration is possible. 
That's the message of the gospel. That's what the Bible is all about. So the question then is, what is your response to that kind of love? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this ought to make your heart well up in gratefulness and worship as you consider what you were destined for and rescued from and as you are reminded of such faithful and constant love. Maybe your love experiences in terms of human relationships have not been modeled by faithfulness and constancy. (laughs) But God is unlike that. God's love is is forever. God's love is faithful. God's love is reliable. God's love is constant. This morning, take time to thank him for it and recommit to worshiping him through obedience from your heart. Make it a thing you do just to say, God, I I want you to know how much I love you and I'm going to show it in my obedience. Would you help me with that? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you find your heart is cold and unresponsive, you won't get judgment from me because I've been there. We sometimes seem to find that our love ebbs and flows. Thanks the Lord that his love is not that way. But the reality is that we experience that. I have experienced that. When you're in those situations, Ask God to warm your heart again by reminding you of his love and then choose to worship through obedience. I think you will find that your heart will be warmed as you do that because God promises to bless. And finally, if you are here this morning and all of this is news to you, you had never heard this before, Um, you never knew there was a problem between you and God or that God had already acted to resolve it before you were even aware there was a problem, at great cost to himself, well, you can come to him this morning with a repentant heart. We just read in those last verses that he welcomes the repentant. He will remember his promise. And he welcomes you with open arms. You can accept Jesus' payment for your sin, uh, for your offense against God this morning. He offers forgiveness and restoration and a relationship with him. He desires it and calls you to that. At the end of verse 45, it said this, that I might be their God. That's the whole emphasis of this entire passage. He desires to be your God this morning. He wants to walk this life with you. He, in fact, wants to give you new life, a new focus, a new heart, and he wants to give you everlasting life as well. Make the choice today to get right with God. (laughs) You won't believe what you're missing. Let's pray. Father, as we read through these passages and as we get to know your word more, as you reveal yourself through your word, we're often stunned as we discover what you have been willing to do and the lengths to which you have been willing to go to to restore us when certainly we haven't uh, always or maybe ever showed that we deserve that kind of love. But that's besides the point. You are love. Your word tells us that. You define love. And you you have done so much to make it possible for us to have a relationship with you, to find out just how much we are valued and loved. Uh, We are your creations. 
and we are um, the focus of your heart. And you sent your son to take our place to suffer the punishment for us. And now we have this opportunity. Father, if there's somebody here this morning who has never taken that step, who has never submitted to your love, open themselves up to it. Father, would you just stir or prod that heart this morning? Draw them to yourself. Father, that we might rejoice to know that there's just another one that has chosen to make themselves a part of the family of God because of what Jesus Christ has done on their behalf. And Father, for those of us who are followers of you, we admit that we do so in weakness, that we stumble a lot, that we don't often um, reflect uh, the reality of that love in our lives. We make mistakes. And Father, we just pray that you would forgive us and that you would walk with us, that you would help us to reflect the love of Jesus Christ more to those around us. Let us be um, image bearers of God as we do this. Father, may we love you more. And we ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a quick response question on the uh, screen behind me, maybe just at your tables. Um, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, where is your heart at this morning? Is it warm toward God? Or are you struggling with a coolness and indifference? Is this all new to you? And then for those of you that are uh, Fellowship Oshawa uh, leaders, perhaps you could just wrap that up in prayer in just a couple of minutes.